Thank you. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to grab it and make your way to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, it's on page 1006 in some of the Bibles, page 947 in probably a few more. Um, we'll probably have it on the screen as well. We all have stories that we hear growing up. Uh, some of them are stories that our parents passed down to us about uh, family members that went before us. And for me, one of them is this family story that my dad often tells um, of my great-great-grandfather who um, traveled to California in the gold rush. And so he's a 49er and he went out to California. And meanwhile, his, his wife stayed behind and stayed with the in-laws, her brother-in-law, uh, in an area of Georgia called Stegall Station. Now it's Emerson, Georgia. Baseball p- people may have heard of Lake Point. Well, that's where the homestead was. But anyhow, um, she's there for three years without having heard from him. And I don't know if he couldn't write, if he didn't write, or if letters didn't get there, but she has no idea of whether he's alive or dead or what's happened for him when one day she sees a guy walking towards the house and she takes off running after him, John, John, John. And as the story has been told throughout the generations, it goes like this, she knowed it was John by his cloak. And there's tons of other family stories I could tell you, you know, um, stories that teach a lesson, stories that serve as examples, some bad, some good. But family stories can be meaningful, they can be helpful, and regardless of whether you know family stories or for any number of reasons feel like you don't have family stories, listen to me, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you do. The Bible is full of stories of your family. Your heritage, this book is full of them. The family of God. And there's grandmas and grandpas and cousins and aunts and more than a few crazy uncles. And Hebrews chapter 11 is chock full of these family stories. About the good, about the bad. But they all had one thing in common. Faith. It's one of the chapters John mentioned earlier is known as the Hall of Faith because what the author is seeking to do through all these family stories is illustrate the point he was making at the end of chapter 10 that we as followers of Jesus are called to persevere by faith. And so he gives just name after name after name, example after example after example of people who kept the faith, who persevered through trials And finished the race, fought the good fight. And the call is that if they can do this, then by the grace of God, so can we. Because there's nothing inherently special about these people. They're people. They're sinners. They're broken. They're just like you and me. But they persevered by faith. And they serve as examples. But that's not all the hall of faith is. It's not just about examples. It also teaches us about what faith looks like and what faith doesn't look like. I mean, the whole chapter begins with a description of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But then it goes through all these examples, giving us pictures of what faith looks like and what faith doesn't. And so this morning, I want to draw your attention to four truths that this section, verses 17 through 40, teaches about faith. Okay? Four truths that this section teaches about faith. And the first one is this. 
Walking by faith requires sacrifice. Walking by faith requires sacrifice. Look at verse 17 with me. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so number one, again, walking by faith requires sacrifice. Now Abraham wound up not having to sacrifice. He didn't have to go through with it, but God did test him. And it says that by faith, Abraham was about to do it. Thinking, trusting, like, hey God, I know this is the child of promise. And it is a bit strange to me that you're asking me to do this. But I trust you. And I know that you can just as easily bring him back from the dead as you gave him life from me who is as good as dead. Verse 12. And so Abraham, by faith, was willing to sacrifice his son, his only son, the son whom he loved in order to prove that he loved God. What are you willing to sacrifice? What are you willing to lay down? To walk away from out of reverence and love for God. Walking by faith requires sacrifice. See, much much of following Jesus is a constant laying down of more and more and more. This is what we see in Abraham's life. He left his home, right? He went from Ur of the Chaldeans. He He left his family. He left his heritage. He went to a new land where he knew no one. He left his wealth. He just went And then here he's being asked to give the son that had been promised. It's also what we see in the life of Moses in just a few seconds. We'll look at that. Walking by faith requires sacrifice. But even as that's the focus of the text, I I don't want us to miss how this whole episode, Genesis 22, points to the gospel. Because God the Father really did sacrifice His son, his only son, the son whom he loved in order to prove how much he loves you and me. Like if you ever wonder, does God love me? Remember the cross. You bet he does. You bet he does. That's the length he went to. He sent Jesus to live for you, to die for you, to rise again for you so you can be justified, commended by faith, made right with God by faith. Not what you do, what Jesus did for you in your place as your substitute. See, we're all sinners. Jesus isn't. He's our only hope. Trust him by faith. And then for the rest of your life, walk by faith. But friend, remember and believe me, walking by faith does require sacrifice. Look down at verse 23 and all that Moses sacrificed. 
By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover, sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch him. And so it starts off with the act of faith done by Moses' parents, who feared God more than they feared man. And then it moves to Moses himself, who chose, verse 25, to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. See, here's a guy, you look at Moses, here's a guy who has every reason, every reason to enjoy the pleasures of the world, every reason to be satisfied with all that life can provide because he's got wealth, he's got power, he's got prestige, he's got praise, he's got popularity, he's got position, he has all of these things. But he walks away. He refuses to be captured by the treasures of this world. Why? Because he's looking forward to the reward. Not a temporary reward. Not a short-term reward. Not a passing reward. But an eternal reward. Friends, why seek to gain the whole wide world and forfeit your soul? At the end of the day, there's only two ways to live. For self or for your Savior. Satisfied with short-sighted, temporary, fleeting treasures or eternal reward. And so will you listen to the voice of life, the Scriptures, or the voices of death, enticing and popular and approved by culture as they may be? Like indulging in sin can be enjoyable for a second, for a temporary fleeting second, but it won't last. That's all it could ever be. It leaves you like sugar, empty, regretful. But joining Jesus in his reproach like Moses did brings an everlasting reward and unending joy, but it does come with sacrifice. Moses had to leave all these things. He left his life of comfort, of wealth, of power, of position, of popularity. He had to leave them behind. It cost him. There was sacrifice, just like there was with Abraham. And so I ask you again, what are you sacrificing? Or what are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to slide the blank check of your life onto the table before God? Write on it whatever you want, God. Whatever you want. 
Following Christ should cost you something. Ponder this. Think about this for a minute. If you did not know Jesus, would your life look the exact same as it does right now? Following Jesus should cost something. It should make us be different. When artist following up on that thought says, can they tell you value Jesus by the way you rep his name? Can the world tell that you value Jesus by how you live for him? If you want to walk by faith, there will be sacrifices. Abraham, Moses, I mean, you just look out all through the scriptures, everybody, their sacrifices. And so like Moses, we have to choose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to be applauded by the world. Don't get canceled for being a jerk. But if you get canceled for following Christ, you're in good company. And so the first fact that we learn here is that walking by faith requires sacrifice. The second thing that this section teaches us is this. Remarkable flaws do not preclude remarkable faith. Remarkable flaws do not preclude remarkable faith. And so look at verse 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time should fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And so at the end of this section here, we get this long list of accomplishments. Wars won, mouths of lions shut, etc., etc. And in all of these, the key ingredient is faith. Not military skill, not even courage, but faith. Trusting in God Almighty to do what He said He's going to do. Depending on God Most High. And so we learn that faith is essential to every spiritual accomplishment. Because as we learned two weeks ago, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But what stands out most here is like, if you know these names, the remarkable flaws of all of these people with remarkable faith. And so the point again, remarkable flaws do not preclude remarkable faith. I mean, just walking through here, the people of Israel, it starts with them. They were constant grumblers and complainers and spiritual adulterers, yet they still walked through on dry ground. They walked around Jericho and the walls came down. Next up, you see Rahab the prostitute who's held up as a member of the hall of faith despite her occupation. How? Because what you've done or had done to you does not define who you are. 
faith defines who you are. You're defined by faith, and faith admits absolutely everyone who repents and believes into the privileges of God. Meaning, through faith, your identity is Christ. Not what you do, not what you've done, not what you've had done to you. You are a son. If you are in Christ, you are a son or a daughter of the King of Kings. That's who you are. That's who you are. Not the stuff, not these labels. And so if you're sitting here this morning thinking that what your life has been, what you've done, what's been done to you somehow puts you beyond the reach of the grace of Christ, friend, you have no idea how much God loves you. You have no idea how far the grace of God goes, how deep it pursues. And when you doubt Look at the cross again. Like Jesus would not have gone to the cross. Did he not love you? He didn't have to go. But he did. Out of love. For you and for me. And so by faith, hang on. Remarkable flaws do not preclude remarkable faith. The author next goes to Gideon. Who demanded signs from God and led Israel to sin when he made an ephod? Barak, how he disobeyed Deborah. Samson, who was sexually promiscuous and broke his covenant with God. Jephthah, who vowed to sacrifice his own daughter. David, who at best committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then sought to have her husband killed and did have her husband killed to cover it up. And even so, the author does not remember them for their flaws, but for their faith. They're commended for their faith. Though they sinned, their lives were ultimately marked by faith in God. I mean, yes and amen, they were flawed. But praise God, it's possible for faith and folly to grow in the same Petri dish. Because if it weren't, we're all in trouble. Because we are all mixtures Of faith and folly, faith and foolishness, faith and sinfulness. We've been justified by faith in Christ, but we still live in the flesh in this world. And there's a constant battle between them. Are we going to live out the new man or the old man? That's why we must constantly be taking off the old man and putting on the new man. There's that one point in time when you put on the new man. Yes, There's that one point in time when you repent, capital R, and you go from death to life. But then the whole rest of your life is continually putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Continually repenting. You never get to a place where that's over. And so two quick things. One, don't shrink back from faith when you sin horribly. Don't shrink back from faith in the midst of that. Satan wants nothing more than for you to wallow in self-loathing and hatred and sit on the sidelines because of it. Not be engaged, not be in the game, not seeking to tell people about Jesus, not seeking to push one another on to faith and good works, not living honestly before your brothers and sisters. Hey, me too, me too. Let's go together, let's let's fight. Christ says, come to me and keep on coming to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you an easy burden, a light one. 
because I'm gentle and lowly. Don't shrink back from faith when you sin. Secondly, remember J.C. Ryle's famous quote. That the best of men are but men at best. We all have clay feet. The best of men are but men at best. Don't put anyone on a pedestal except Christ. He alone is sinless. Every single other person who's ever lived or ever will live is a sinner. And so you take that person that perhaps you think is like, oh, he's like, you know, there's, 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 there's Jesus and then there's the Apostle Paul and then this guy or this girl. Don't put them there. If we showed their life on the screens, you would be shocked. Just as if we showed my life or your life on the screens, everybody would be shocked. Because we're all men at best. The best of men are but men at best. There's not like good people and bad people. There's bad people in Jesus. That's how it works. And he's kind to rescue anyone who would repent and believe and then never cast us out, even in the midst of remarkable flaws. And so, friend, keep going. Remarkable flaws do not preclude remarkable faith. Third thing we learn from this section, and it's pretty doggone straightforward. It's, it's not the way the text mentions it. It's what pops off the page completely at me, and it's this. The prosperity gospel is heresy. The prosperity gospel is heresy. Look at the end of verse 35. And more people in the hall of faith, though none are named. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, and they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And so, again, the prosperity gospel, which teaches that, like, if you have enough faith and love God enough, then his will for your life will be manifested and his will for your life is that you never get sick, you never have any trouble, you're rich, you're beautiful, you're strong. That if you just have enough faith, you can be healthy and wealthy your whole life. Nothing bad will come upon you. Friends, if that's the case, then why are these dudes in the hall of faith? If that is the case, I mean, did they not have enough faith? But they're in the hall of faith. And so is that the case? Why is Paul constantly praying for his readers to have endurance and patience? If the prosperity gospel is true, then why are the scriptures filled with warnings? Hey, you're going to suffer. It's going to be tough. Peter says, don't be surprised when it comes upon you. Why do all the apostles get killed for the faith? Why do people all over the world today still get killed for the faith? Why are we following a man who was beaten and crucified? Did Jesus not have enough faith?
And Sarah and I actually had people telling us stuff like this when Eden was born. Oh, you know your baby's not really sick, right? You just got to believe. She doesn't have Down syndrome. You just got to believe that. You got to receive that. She doesn't need colon surgery. She doesn't need heart surgery. You just got to believe it. You just got to receive it. Don't worry about the doctor's echocardiogram. Let's see what the Lord's echocardiogram is, what the Lord's word is. And what the Lord's word was, she has arterial septal, arterial ventricular septal defect. She needs surgery or she'll die. Still people are like, no, you you don't claim that. You, You don't receive that. Just believe it's not there and it will happen. Bad Joe wants to say, let me punch you in the throat and see you not receive that. (laughs) And so I hate the prosperity gospel. It's complete unbiblical garbage that defames God and damages his people. And I'm not saying that God has no power to miraculously heal. He absolutely does. But I'm just saying he's not Aladdin. Or he's not, you're not Aladdin and he's not a genie. You cannot control him. He's kind and gracious, but you can't control him. He's not a tame lion, but he is good. And so the prosperity gospel is heresy. It's garbage. It's not true. Everybody bleeds. Everybody suffers. Everybody hurts. Everybody gets sick. Everybody has tough times. Everybody dies. We live in a fallen, broken world. There are tough days. There are tough seasons. But God doesn't abandon us in those. By faith, these guys, these girls, were able to endure all of this. By faith. Not happiness necessarily, but an unshakable faith that's not based upon their present circumstances. Not based upon their circumstances in life being perfect, but set on the one who loves them, loves you perfectly. Remembering his nature and his character, his sovereign loving kindness, and looking to the future. Which brings us to number four. A better world is coming. A better world is coming. This is where all of the people of faith set their hope. All of the whole of faith set their hope from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, looking forward to a city, a heavenly city with foundations, to Moses who was looking forward to the reward. Everyone was looking to the future. This is how you live by faith. You look to the future. Faith looks forward. Because God has promised a better world is coming. So look at verse 39. In all these, though commended, okay, or justified, made right with God through their faith, did not receive what was promised, like the literal fulfillment. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That is, that we must all keep the faith until Christ comes again. And our faith is made sight and we are all, God's people, made perfect, resurrected, 
glorified in the better world that is to come, the new heavens and the new earth. Like this world, no matter how great you make it, is never going to be home. We are exiles here. We are sojourners here. Do not try to live out an over-realized eschatology that like this world can become perfect, because it can't. It can't. We're waiting on a better world, and it's coming. Right now, we live in an already not yet paradigm. Already the kingdom has been ushered in by Christ. But it is not yet fully here. Already we've been saved by grace, but we've not yet been glorified. Salvation has not reached its end. That will happen when Christ comes again. When the clouds, as we sang, be rolled back as a scroll. And the trumpet will sound out and the Lord will descend and it will indeed be well with our soul. And so until then, when Christ comes again and in sin and death and pain and sorrow and makes all things new, don't stop believing. Don't stop. Keep on. Keep the faith. Like keep on believing all the way up to your final breath. We live in this world all the way up to the end by faith. And that's what the author of Hebrews is teaching us in this section. How do you live the Christian life? By faith. Faith that makes sacrifices. Faith that doesn't quit even in the midst of remarkable flaws and sin. Faith that perseveres through suffering. And faith that looks to the promised better world. That's how you live the Christian life. By faith. And that's what all these family stories are here to remind you of. By faith. Abraham did it. And Moses did it. And all these unnamed people who were tortured, chains, stoned, sawn in two, by faith, they kept going. Friends, by faith, live. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we do thank you for your word that you have given us. Father, please apply it to our hearts. Grant us by the power of the Holy Spirit to be stirred up towards you and others with love and good works together. To count the costs, to not shrink back in face of costs, to not shrink back when we sin, to not shrink back when hardship comes. And to keep the faith until you come. And make all things new. Father, help us to live with an eternal perspective, an eternal mindset, looking for that reward. Not here and now. Not the trinkets and shininess that the world throws at us. Oh, this will satisfy you. Oh, this will make you feel 
whole. This will give you meaning and fulfillment and purpose. Lord, let us not be fools. Give us wisdom. Give us wisdom. That what the world offers is a mirage. And what you offer is rock-solid hope. And let us run towards you and that hope. In Christ's name, amen.